welcome to the Clemson Drone Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Burgett from Clemson University. Join me as I dive into the world of drone technology and explore its impact to the eyes of industry leaders. Hear how drone technology directly supports public agencies, private companies, and entrepreneurs from those leading the innovation. If you're a seasoned UAS program manager or just getting into the game, this is a place to learn from the best to help your program soar to new heights. Make sure you subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a single episode of the Clemson Drone Podcast. At Clemson Drone, the sky is not the limit, it's just the beginning. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Berg with Clemson University, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of the Clemson Drone Podcast. As a professor, I get to have a lot of conversations with drone users and hear the innovative ways they are using drones to do their jobs better, faster, safer, and at lower cost. In that vein, I'm very excited to have Daryl Jones with the South Carolina Forestry Commission on the phone. He is a forest protection chief and is involved with wildfire suppression, fire prevention, emergency response, law enforcement, and forest health, among other things. He holds a degree in forest resource management from Clemson University and is the current president of Skyduck, which we're going to talk a bit more about later in the show. Daryl, thanks for being here. Thanks, Joe. It's glad to be here. All right, good deal. Well, we're going to jump right into it here. So we're going to talk about drones here in a minute, but I always kind of like to get a little bit of a backstory and, and kind of know the, you know, know the person that's uh, behind the story. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into drone tech? Yeah, so um, I actually had my 10th anniversary December 2nd when we first started. And, you know, 10 years ago, the drone industry was a lot different. Uh, but before that, I had more of a political and government affairs background. And at the time, my wife and I were living in Nevada. We just found out we were having twins on the way. We we're both originally from Ohio, so we decided, hey, uh, I think it's time to raise the kids back home closer to family. So it's kind of job searching. And uh, I heard about this, this program, the Ohio UAS Center. Back then, it was Ohio Indiana UAS Center when we were going for the FA uh, test center. So I had some friends in the, uh, the governor's uh office. They were looking for someone that could do more communications and talk with legislature and, you know, kind of build a message about what we were doing. But back then, you know, the industry was so new uh, that anyone could really jump in. And to this day, it's still new enough that anyone could really jump in if you decide to make a career change. And that's what I did. So back 10 years ago, eight years ago, the regulatory environment was a lot different. You had to be a private pilot to fly uh, drones. So I dove right into it, went through my ground school, got my private pilot's license, and all that's going on. That's when the uh, FAA came out with a remote pilot certificate in 2016. So everything's kind of changed since then. So that's kind of my background, Joe. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think people really kind of forget that like part 107 is like the the lay of the land, but you know, it was out in what, August of 2016. It is like new. We're talking less than yep. eight years. And yep. if you look at where we're at now and what we're what we're doing with things and thinking back that like 10 years ago, this 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 wasn't here. You know, maybe the tech was here, but the regulation just held everything back. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So, well, tell me. So the Ohio UAS Center, um, you know, it's under the DOT. But do you want to like kind of talk through a little bit about what that is, the relationship with the DOT and, and just kind of the overall center itself? Yeah. So um we used to kind of be our own standalone agency within Ohio Department of Transportation, but now we're under Drive Ohio, which is our autonomous vehicle division. So we sit underneath them. So there's two sides of the house. We have the research side, um, which we have Sky Vision, which is we have a partnership with Air Force Research Laboratory. 
So we use three radars to look at manned air traffic, cooperative, uncooperative. So we've developed a new kind of a test area and all that equipment is sitting in an RV, but we now just moving into our new building this month. We hope to move all that technology into an air operations center um, so we can test things. Uh, you saw that Joby is moving to Ohio to have a manufacturing. So we've been testing some of their vehicles using our test system. Various other companies have been using our test range uh, to develop technology. So that's the research side of the house. So I do the operations side of the house. So we mainly support the Ohio Department of Transportation. There's 12 districts. They're all a little bit different. They're all like their own sovereign nations. So the leadership's different in everyone. Sometimes these districts are more advanced than the other districts. So some of it really embrace of it. Some of them are just kind of getting used to it. Um, so we, so I manage the flight teams. We have 33 pilots right now. We're adding a 34th one next week, which we're training. We'll talk more about training. Um, we also uh, shared service for other agencies. So we have the high department of natural resources. We do magnetometry uh, surveys with them. So on the 20th century, uh, everyone was drilling for oil in Ohio. Um, and one of the first, I think the first offshore drilling anywhere in the world was a Grand Lake St. Mary's in um, Mercer County, Ohio. So there's basically metal casings that go sometimes thousands of feet in the ground. They're in a lake. They still leak. So we're using a magnetometer and using a heavy lift aircraft that's hybrid electric. It's got an endurance of about three hours. So we're looking for um, abandoned wellheads across hmm. the state. It could be in a lake. It could be in someone's field. It could be underneath a house. Sometimes we'll find them there. We're also working with a couple other agencies, the Ohio Department of uh, Health, the Radiation Division. So we're currently using an M600. We have a radiation detector. So we've got two nuclear uh, plants in Ohio. So if there's ever an incident like Three Mile Island or Chernobyl, we can send an aircraft in there and get a reading about how the radiation levels before we start sending humans in there. And sometimes hazardous cargo passes through Ohio. So um, we look at that. Other agencies would be uh, Ohio Highway Patrol. We work with their folks in accident reconstruction, uh, traffic management, things of that nature. Awesome. Well, that, a lot to unpack there. So with your 33 pilots, are, are they full-time pilots? Um, no, we've got at the Ohio UAS Center, we've got, um, it's a great question. We've got, let's see, we've got uh, five full-time pilots. Okay. They're currently, and the rest of the folks are, uh, they're bridge inspectors, they're surveyors, they're traffic engineers, construction engineers. Sometimes they're just highway technicians that are helping us support construction management projects, things of that nature. Okay. So we're pulling a lot of folks. Well, let me just dive in there just a little bit here. So so if I'm understanding this right and, and explain, you know, and, and jump in if I don't say it right. So you got the Ohio Center and you and your multi-service. So your primary customer, if I can call them customers, is going to be the Ohio DOT. Yeah. But then you but then you mentioned some of those other really, you know, cool, cool use cases and wellheads and radiation. So you have those other you have those other players. In the center itself, you have five full-time folks, and you know we can unpack this in a minute, but they, they have their set of responsibilities. But then you have others that are peppered throughout the 12 districts, and those folks, they have a job. They're a bridge inspector, mm -hmm. they're a traffic engineer, whatever you say. Right. But a drone is, a, is another tool to help them do their job better, faster, safer, cheaper. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. We found out a long time ago, I don't know, probably five or six years ago, I'm not a bridge inspector. I'm not sure what I'm looking for. It's a lot easier to train a bridge inspector to be a drone pilot than it is to train a drone pilot, hmm. one of our full-time guys, to be a bridge inspector or get into right. surveying or construction management or something like that. So 
everyone has their own kind of niche inside the high department of transportation, and it's this way across the nation. So like you said, it's another tool in the toolbox to make their job safer, easier, and more efficient. Gotcha. All right. So with the, I understood the logistics there. So talk to me a little about the logistics of those part-time pilots. Let's just say, we'll just use an example as a bridge inspector. They're a bridge inspector. They're a great bridge inspector. They're doing this, but they, they've been introduced to drones. They see the value. What is the next step for that? How do you, I mean, do you recruit them or do they come to you? How does, you know, how do drones get into their hands? Uh, great question. So a lot of times we'll go on district road shows where we'll bring some aircraft and show them the technology, give them a presentation, show them what we can do. And sometimes you'll have folks say, hey, I really want to get into this. Tell me how to do it. And other folks are kind of lukewarm to it. But the first step would be we require folks to go out and get their Part 107 on their own. Our LTAP program, Local Technical Assistance Program, they developed the Part 107 study guide cheat sheet that uh, mm-hmm. has their own program. It gets folks going through that. So we'll send them manuals and videos that we think are important, test prep questions, things like that. So once they get their, their Part 107, um, well, let me just kind of ask about that. So it's, if I'm hearing this right, it's up to them to get their part 107. And, and I have heard from other you know organizations, they, they don't want to, they don't call it a weed out because they, you know, they want everyone to be inclusive, but you know, some people have more time to dedicate to it. And what they have found is yeah. if they, you know, they send someone to a class for three days or four days or whatever, and you know, they get the time off and the per diem and everything, they'll sit there and they'll pass the part 107. But you know, it was just kind of given to them in that respect. But others, you know, and I kind of think this is how you're describing it. It's a little bit more onus is on them where here are some resources, but you need to find the time to get it. You need to kind of have some initiative to be able to pass the part 107. And those folks that have that initiative and the time and the resources dedicated, whatever it happens to be, those end up being the more successful pilots long-term for the program. Is that a fair characterization? And, and does that kind of sound right to you? That's definitely fair. We tried doing part 107 training on our own. Then I would say probably 20% or less actually came back to us or completed completed the um, exam. You know, a lot of people get test fright or they get hung up on the weather or just decide they're not as interested as they thought they would be. Yeah. So maybe your advice and again, I hate putting words in your mouth, but for if there's another organization that's out there that's looking to start up a program, your recommendation might not be to, okay, let's hire some trainers and bring a bunch of people in and get them all part 107. It might be more like, let's provide some tools, some direction posts, you know, some resources, and then allow there to be a little bit of initiative that required on the potential pilot's part before they get fully um, uh, embraced into the, your US, UAS program. Yeah, we found that's the most successful model, at least to date. Okay. So I want to talk a little about, uh, speaking of model, um, and you had mentioned before that you got five full-time folks and you've got, you know, the rest or so are part-timers or or part-time drone pilots. In the individual districts, who manages the the drone program in, in each individual district? Is there like a UAS manager there? That, that helps out with checklist and insurance and purchasing, or is that all funneled through your center? Um, it's all funneled through um, the Ohio UAS Center, and uh, I kind of manage that program, and a couple of our main pilots, they act. Let me back up. So we're currently using uh, Drone Logbook mm-hmm. um, as our fleet management system, so we can track currency, we can track hours on the aircraft. There is an approval process through there, and it's always good to have a second set of eyes looking at a 
you know, a, a given area. We've had TFRs pop up, presidential TFRs in the past, and folks have tried to fly in them. So having another second second set of eyes or airspace, sometimes folks might not realize they're in a class D. So having kind of a, another set of eyes look at that has been very helpful. So everyone kind of files their own flight plans inside you know, we're, I'm not endorsing any product over another, but we're currently using drone logbooks, and that's working well for us, particularly the fleet management. A lot of other ones didn't have that in the past, but this one does. So everyone kind of does everything through there, so we kind of know where everyone is at any given point in time. So if someone asks us, hey, is ODOT flying a drone over here? It's next to critical infrastructure. We can go to our uh, flight schedule and say, hey, yes, that's us, or no, that's not us. So if, if, let's just say, and again, I'm going to go back to the bridge inspector. So there's Joe Blow who wants to, you know, is scheduled to inspect this bridge. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I was at that bridge, you know, two years ago for the last inspection. This is a perfect candidate for using a drone. I want to do that. So they go into the drone logbook or whatever resource that, that's there. They file a flight plan. Do they need to get approval by you or their supervisor or anybody to use that drone? Or do they have that autonomy to do it themselves? Well, they have the autonomy to uh, select their flights or whatever the area they want to do, but they'll just put the flight plan in uh, the drone logbooks. And there's like four of us that are approving flights. So there's always someone looking at uh, the, the calendar and we get emails that are sent to us saying, hey, there's a flight request, take a look at it. So they have autonomy as far as deciding what they want to do, but ultimately they'll put a flight plan in and one of us will approve it. Okay. And you guys have, you know, again, you have uh, a history of this program. I mean, you, you've got some size there, you've got scale, it's been around for a while. So you've got some advantages that, that some programs that might be newer, a, a new DOT, for example, that hasn't used drones a lot or a random a, a state agency or, or whatever that wants to develop a, uh, develop a program. You want to talk through a little bit maybe about the pros and cons of kind of a centralist model that sounds like what you guys have is, you know, a central UAS manager and team that kind of facilitates that as opposed to what I'll call a federalist model where it's a little bit more distributed to the various different, you know, in your case, it's districts, but whatever they happen to be for other agencies. Pros and cons, and do you have maybe a recommendation? Well, it's a good question. Um, it just kind of ultimately evolved into the system where the UAS center was scheduling it. We provide a lot of resources. We have the majority of the aircraft. Um, we have the ability to purchase aircraft. Maybe it's a little easier than some of the districts. And, you know, we'll go out there and do our homework. And we've been out in the field. A lot of, all of us are over a hundred hours uh, pilots. One of our guys is over 600 hours. He's always out there. He's, had, he's out there flying six flights today. So mm. It's evolved that way. So I'm not saying one day or our way is better than the other one. It just evolved that way. And it, right now it's working for us having this model. I mean, maybe in the future down the road, every district has their own flight operations manager. If it gets so big, mm -hmm. maybe it evolves to that. But currently it's working for us. It's been successful. There hasn't been any major incidents. So we like the way it's going for the time being. We intend to kind of keep it that way. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That, that definitely makes sense. Now, before we were talking again about part 107, and that'd be the initial step of the training process, you point them in the right direction. They get, you know, they're on their own. They, they get their, you know, they go out, they take their test, they get their part 107. And then what happens? So they get their part 107. So as you know, like in manned aviation, when I got my private pilot certificate, I had to do a lot of training. FAA required me to do a lot of training, night training, flying in a controlled airspace, you name it, we had to do it. But the FAA does not have a training program. So if the onus is on 
the states or whoever to get their own training. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a responsible thing to do is go out and get your own training. Right. So I personally went to Embry Ridley Aeronautical Division. They have their own drone program, tops level one, tops level two, tops level three, and fundamentals of flight instruction, which I took all that. So in a perfect world, I'd love to find a training program that would train our folks internally. The ones there seem to be very expensive. And a lot of times, you know, we've got to get buy-in. If a bridge inspector comes to me and says, hey, how do I get my part 107? I'm like, well, the first step is you got to talk to your supervisor about that. Right. And, you know, a supervisor is not going to say, hey, you're okay. You can spend three or $4,000 on a training program. That's just not going to happen in our current, you know. Right. Where the environment is, the economy is, you know, money is kind of scarce right now. So we've developed our own training program inside the Ohio UAS Center. And it's kind of mimicked after uh, manned aviation. Mm-hmm. Now I'm happy to share. I think I already shared some of this stuff with you too. You you, you um, talked to me a little bit about it, but I mean, I, I think I think the audience could really benefit yeah. about you know what it is. You know, so once once they come into your program, what does it okay. look like? And flight hours, and what do you do, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I guess someone came to me and said, "Hey, uh, I want to be a bridge inspector. What do I do?" So they tell me, "You got to go out your get your Part 107. Here's everything you need. Come back to me when you've uh, passed." So once they pass, they'll say, hey, now what do I do? So we'll have about an hour of online training where we'll teach them about our current system, drone logbooks, and how to do a flight plan. And we'll give them a cheat sheet on how to do that and go through everything they need to do. I'm going through the land system. So if they're flying in controlled airspace, they know how to do that. Right. So we'll try to get a lot of stuff online out of the way before they drive two and a half hours, three hours, whatever it is, to our facility to go training. So once we do that, They'll come to our our training facility. Uh, Usually it's about two half days of training. We'll put them on a platform. Mm -hmm. If they're a bridge inspector, we have a certain platform we recommend. If they're a surveyor, there's a certain uh, platform we recommend. So we'll get them on that aircraft. And it usually takes about three hours, we find, three hours of flight time where we feel like someone's proficient. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more. Sometimes it could be a little less. But once they're uh, proficient, we'll sign them off. And we'll issue them the aircraft where they're required to get 10 total hours of flight time. Mm-hmm. So they're flying at their district. During the pandemic, if they lived out in um, the rural area, they could fly at their home. Just getting used to the stick and rudder and learning how to fly the aircraft and going through our safety management systems, going through our risk assessment, learning our SOPs. You know, they're learning a lot of stuff and asking us questions along the way. So once they get to that 10-hour mark, we'll kind of do our own mini check ride. If you're familiar with aviation, you do a check ride to get your, your certificate. Yeah. So we'll go out with them at a bridge site, you know, make sure they're doing everything safely. And if we feel comfortable, we'll sign them off and they're good to go. Just start mm-hmm. uh, requesting stuff in our, our flight management software. And that's where we go from there. All right. So once and and... Do they keep the equipment at their office uh, or is it all like issued out through a central location like where you're at? So we kind of have like a model, um, if anyone's familiar with an IT system. So we're almost like the IT folks. Like I've got a laptop. We have an IT folks that manage that. So if it breaks, something goes happen, I'll send it back to IT and they'll give me a new one. So we kind of have that model of aircraft. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll maintain them. We're tracking their hours. We have a 50-hour inspection. We have a 100-hour inspection. One of our main pilots, he's a former A&P mechanic, so he kind of manages uh, the maintenance. So if it breaks or something happens, they send it back, we'll give them a new one. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And then, again, after the the training that's uh, with you in the initial step, then 10 hours on their own, then after that, then there's a check ride, 
then they are issued a, a drone through that IT program. Well, not IT program, but the, the program you just described. Right. How, what additional follow-up is, uh, is done with them? Is there a, a set amount of flight hours they need to do every month or year or whatever? Or, or, and, and how is that established? If they don't, if they don't fly for a while, are they, are they current or, or what's the threshold? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've kind of, again, mimicked that after a manned aviation. So um, let's say they've flown a bridge. And that one, if 30 days, we we would like them to do training at like once in a 30-day period or do an operation. So if 30 days lapses, then let's say like it's day number 31, 32, and they schedule a, a flight, I'll go back to them and say, hey, you know, you're past the 30 days. You can see it. Our system will alert you. You need to go out and do a training mission, get familiar with the uh, – the aircraft, you know, make sure you're not forgetting anything like batteries, SD cards, things like that. Get really acquainted with the aircraft. Fly for about 15 minutes, then resubmit your your operation. So during like that 30 to 90 day window, they just have to do training operations. But if they lapse over 90 days, then they got to come to the UAS center, and we'll kind of it's like a biannual current. You lose your currency, you got to go with an instructor and, and go through a, a series of a. Uh, uh, steps. So we kind of do that as well. Then every two years, we kind of do almost like a biannual flight review to bring them in, maybe show them a new aircraft. You know, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way. So maybe we say, hey, I got a bridge inspector has done it this way. It seems like an easier way to upload the flight logs, things like that nature. So it's just, a, it's always good to be training. You know, it's a perishable skill. It's always mm. good to be trying uh, new techniques and things of that nature. So more communication, more training, the safer, the higher probability you'll have a, a safer and successful flight. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let me uh, let me ask one final question of you. And uh, a lot of the folks that are listening to this, uh, they they may be wor- working for a municipality. It may not be a DOT, or it could be a DOT. Uh, and they're looking at this, and they're they're they see the benefit. They they see drones. They there's an there's an appeal to that. They see the benefit. They see the cost savings. They co- they see the safety savings and uh, and the safer operations. They see all of that, um, but. There is no drone program. They've been tasked with either exploring it or to create it. Uh, as someone who is from a seasoned UAS center and has a, a background in it, you have any advice that you might give to somebody who, again, is just starting a program from, from the ground up, minimal funding. They have to have a little bit of funding, right? But minimal funding. Where would you have them start? What would you have them focus on? And what's some advice that you'd give them? That's a great question. So we get a lot of small municipalities and local law enforcement and fire folks that come to us and say the exact same thing. Hey, everyone else is using this technology. We want to start using it. We see the benefits. You know, where do we start? What should we do? What aircraft should we buy? So we'll get four of our five of our guys on there and uh, we'll talk it through, try to figure out what the requirements are. Uh, maybe it's a law enforcement. They want to do some night flights or look for like lost folks. So you know, you're definitely going to need some sort of aircraft with a thermal or IR capability. So we'll kind of see what the requirements are. Maybe it's a, uh, a local engineer's office that wants to start doing survey. So we'll we'll talk to them about getting the right aircraft. You know, in Ohio, we've got a CORS uh, VRS system where it has high level GPS. So you can actually program your aircraft uh, to get high level GPS, at least uh, the X and the Y, then you'd, we tell them to, you know, you need to have a licensed survey to shoot the Z ground control points in there. Mm-hmm. But things like that, and we send our SOPs, our our training manuals, anyone that asks us. So, I mean, we're happy to share that information with anyone that wants it. Um, but, you know, if you want a local, uh, you know, find out in your state, 
you know, who the folks are that may be more seasoned. It could be law enforcement. It could be the state DOT or it could be another agency. I know New York and New York, um, I forget what actual agency is, but it's not the DOT, they're the leader. But whoever the leader is in your state, um, lean on them, ask them for advice and just kind of do a requirements uh, session and figure out your needs are. And I do recommend having, um, you know, some sort of flight management software. It's good for tracking currency. So, if, you know, you know, your folks uh, are up to up to date on the currency, um, tracking your aircraft maintenance, things of that nature. I think that's all very helpful. And at the end of the day, it, it's all about safety and it gives you a better probability of having a sec- successful and safer flight. If you're one of these agencies that local you pull out of the box and start flying around, you crash into a tree. I mean, that could tank your whole program pretty quickly. Yeah. So that, that's a really good response. So some of the things that I heard out of that was one, and I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, so make sure I'm not going too far there, but identify what your okay. requir- requirements are, right? So know why you're trying to do this, right. try to figure that out. Uh, develop your your SOPs and your procedures and, and spend some time mm-hmm. forcing you to, not necessarily the fun part, but the, the forcing yourself to write that up, put those on paper so make, make sure that you've thought through it. Then start looking at equipment to what uh, meets that need um, and, and get some training on that. Right. And then partnering up with someone who's maybe got a more seasoned program than you and look for expertise to help help build yours and not necessarily start from scratch with everything. You know, what is the acronym R and D rip off and deploy or something like that. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But borrow from others, people, but would you kind of say that those kind of steps are are kind of what you found successful? Very successful. And you laid that out perfectly better than I could. But in this industry, it's funny because, um, I've got friends and almost the majority of the States will bounce ideas off each other and it's a, such a new technology. If you're succeeding, then other people are succeeding too. So there's a lot of regulatory environment a challenge we need to get through. So if we're all operating safely, we'll build trust nationwide with not only the public, but the FAA and other stakeholders out the country to make sure we're doing everything as safely and responsible as we can. Well, great. Well, listen, this has been really, really useful and a very uh, beneficial conversation. Thank you so much for being uh, being on this call, uh, and thank everyone else who's listening for for participating in the in the Clemson Drone Podcast. Uh, again, this is the the goal here for this is to provide a space where we we talk with with industry leaders and to pick their brain and learn learn their stories and learn uh, learn from their successes and and just pr- provide that out there in the to the drone community for the, everyone's benefit. So, again, thank you for tuning in, and uh, and David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Clemson Drone Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Learn more about our online training offerings by going to ClemsonDrone.com. Thanks again. And remember, at Clemson Drone, the sky's not the limit. It's just the beginning.